0: chango
1: Hey, Chris and everybody. Just want to talk about something that's been frustrating me recently. I've been applying for jobs
2: and a lot of these jobs say here at so-and-so we're family, which to me is just a lot of bullshit because it's like, no, you're not my family. You're not my family members.
1: My family wouldn't fire me because I can't pass a drug test or because I show up late or because I'm not being productive. They also wouldn't not bring me on, my family that is, because I don't have the right qualifications that are usually relevant once you get going in the job. So I wish companies would just be honest and say we're here to make money, be productive, and sell our little widgets. Hey everybody, Chris here. Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. My guest this week is Hamilton Morris who is a journalist, uh, documentarian, I believe. Uh, He had a show for a while called uh, Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia. He's an expert on psychoactive substances, uh, and he's a scientific researcher working on um, neurotransmitters, I believe, and other chemicals that are floating around in the human brain, doing all sorts of interesting things of which we are only vaguely aware. Uh, Yeah. Someone said, I think maybe it was... uh, Dennis McKenna uh talked about how interesting it is that we talk about drugs as these sort of external elements in the world that that we ingest and that have all sorts of effects on us because we are made of drugs uh, was I believe his point that the brain is a soup of drugs, and so the idea that we're taking drugs and that that has these effects on us is really interesting because we are in fact drugs. It's kind of like pouring water into a river. It's not pouring water onto a desert. We are swimming with drugs. We are flowing with drugs. We are add your own gerund here with drugs, bubbling with drugs, stewing in drugs. We are drugs ourselves. Speaking of Dennis McKenna. I did uh, his podcast recently. It's not up yet. I think he's banking a few before he starts uh, releasing them, but look for that when you hear that the Dennis McKenna podcast is out and about. Uh, I'll be on there somewhere, someday. Uh, Okay, I'm going to keep this kind of quick because i don't have my normal setup i'm not listening to headphones right now so i don't know how this sounds i'll listen to it before i inflict it upon you but there's a good chance that i'll have to re-record the whole thing so i'll keep it brief i'm using my sister's uh, blue snowball microphone which um, is not what i'm used to Uh, I'm in Los Angeles. I came to visit my mom for a few days while my sister was out of town and then uh, mom had a little bit of a health issue and I didn't want to leave her um, while she wasn't feeling well so I decided to stick around till my sister got back. So it's one of those situations where you pack for a three-day trip and you end up spending 10 days so you're wearing the same clothes every damn day. Uh, that's my situation right now. So it's a good thing you can't smell me, I guess, is what I'm getting at. This is a an audio-only experience, which is probably better. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation with Hamilton. Uh, he was suggested as a guest by someone, I believe, on the Reddit, uh, sub, subreddit, um, tangentially speaking, if you do Reddit. Is it if you do read it or if you read it? Is read it a verb? I don't know. I, I feel sometimes I feel like the language, it's not just the language. I feel like a lot of things are passing me by, and generally that's presented as a negative, right? When you get older, you're kind of like, oh, you're not keeping up with the latest this and the latest that fashion and music trends and whatever. But the way I experience it is generally as a positive. It's like, wow, I don't need to give a shit about Wordle. Like, I know Wordle is a thing. I know people do it, if that's what it is, or or they Wordle, if that's a verb. Uh, I know there are lots of people who care about it. I'm not one of them. And it's so, it's like... It's like being liberated from something you were never constrained by. It's it's like instant gratification. Hey, there's another thing I don't give a shit about. There's another person I don't know who they are. Oh, well, they died. Well, I never knew who they were in the first place, so it doesn't bother me. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I don't know if, if everyone experiences that at every age or if this is a if this is in fact an age-related experience, but I'm invigorated by the number of things that I see out there in the, you know, on the horizon that I have absolutely no interaction with. It's fantastic. Musicians, actors... Trends, fashion things, they just come and they go and it never, they never touch me. It's awesome. I think living in Crestone is kind of uh, like that too. It's, you're so remote that it's all happening out there somewhere. There's something really relaxing about that, about being remote. Uh, speaking of remote Montana, is remote whitefish is remote. Uh, I am told that some of the people who signed up for the Sexidon retreat have not, in fact, sent in their money. So if you signed up for the retreat and you have changed your mind, or you know you just forgot about it, or whatever, you didn't get around to it. Um, let us know. Uh, go to Budokan. Well, you've got the email, I guess, if you signed up for it. But this also means that if you are interested in joining us, there are some slots open that we thought were not open. Um, I'm just getting this news today and yesterday, so passing it along to you. If you would like to join us August 20th to 25th, I believe there are some spots open, um, unless the people hearing this who have forgotten to send in their money act fast. So whoever gets there first, basically, is what I'm saying. If you haven't sent in your deposit or, or paid your whatever fee they're asking you for, uh, your spot is not guaranteed. So jump on that, or don't let them know one way or the other, uh, so that uh, we can open those spots up and not disappoint anybody. But if you would like to join us August 20th to 25th in Whitefish, Montana, at this beautiful property owned by Millane and Cameron Shane, you should go to Budocon. B u d o k o n dot events. You'll see the Sex at Dawn retreat. With Christopher Ryan and Anya Katz and Cameron and Melaine Shane, it's going to be very integrated uh, movement, intellect. um, People, I've, I've read some of the emails from people who are going to be coming. They're going to be, it's going to be a really interesting group of people. And I think that's, look, all we try to do, all I'm trying to do really, in life is set a tone. I try to do it with the podcast. I try to do it in my personal life. Um, I remember a long time ago someone said a good teacher isn't focused on transmitting information. They are interested in creating a space where learning can take place. And um, I, I, I really like that because a, because it it takes a lot of the pressure off the teacher in a way, a certain kind of pressure, right? This isn't about, you know, organizing my class notes and putting together the perfect PowerPoint and, you know, crossing all my T's and dotting all my I's. This is about a mood. This is about, um, what's the word, modeling a, a certain kind of approach to learning, uh, so that the other people in the room feel comfortable uh, with their own approach to learning. Um, So that's what we try to do there. And I think last year we were successful, and I'm confident that we'll be successful this year, in setting a tone where people feel safe and challenged and invigorated and, um, and, you know, people who are making the effort to come to something like this and, you know, budgeting the money to pay for it. Um, they're doing it for a reason. And the reason that we're, we're focused on is creating a space where we can have real conversations with real people about real things. Uh, so it's very much about, Community, And so, you know, interestingly, I see this as a safe space, even though I kind of ridicule that concept, um, but it's a safe space to be dangerous. It's a safe space for dangerous ideas. It's a safe space to express thoughts that you wouldn't express out there in the normal world where uh, judgment and misunderstanding are so prevalent. Um, you know, so it's a safe space to be unsafe, I guess is what I'm saying. So, uh, that's what we intend to create. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be, there's going to be a lot of transparency, a lot of openness, uh, hopefully a lot of growth and, um, you know, and a lot of love. So anyway, if that sounds good to you, if that sounds like, God damn it, that's what I need in my life right now, uh, consider it. Go to budokon.com, uh, Sex at Dawn event. You can read about, you know, what we've got in mind. and Or feel free to reach out to me directly if you have some questions or um, you just want to run something by us. Uh, let us know. And if you have registered and you haven't sent in your money yet, uh, get on that or let them know that you're not going to be able to make it so they can open up that uh, that space for someone else. All right. Thank you for listening. This is another totally free edition of the podcast. Uh, I keep, you know, getting advice from the folks at Substack, like, y- you got to make paid episodes. That's the way to, you know, maximize your paying subscribers. And uh, yeah, 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 I know I should. But I just feel like... um. I don't know. I just like the free episodes. Anyway, thank you for listening. I'm going to play you out with a classic tune. If you're my age, anyway, it was a classic tune. I think it's from the early 70s. And it relates to the snippet I played earlier, Uh, you know, this idea that, uh, oh, yeah, we're all family here at uh, Widget Manufacturers, Inc., This is Family Affair by Sly and the Family Stone. Thank you for listening. Hope to see you in Montana or somewhere else along the road. Hope you're well.
0: in the mud It's a family affair It's a family
3: affair
0: It's a family affair But you can't say, cause you've been somewhere else. You can't cry, cause you look broke down. But you're crying anyway, cause you're all broke down. It's a family foul.
1: Mr. or doctor? Do you, I forget if you have a PhD.
2: No, I do not have a PhD. Mr.
1: Mr. Hamilton Morris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You have a, you have a very deep voice. The two of us are, are hitting the low registers. I'm <laughs> going to get lots yeah. of fan mail from the ladies. Hmm. <laughs> All right. So, uh, welcome i I've, I've been aware of you for for a while someone years ago sent me a link to your uh, tv show the what is it called hamilton's pharmacopeia
2: that's right yeah. yeah that's what it was called yeah
1: yeah um and uh and then just recently somebody else reached out again and said you got to get this guy in the podcast he's he's right up your alley so here we are in our shared alley Um, I'm probably two or three generations older than you, but uh, I feel like we we tread or we have trod a lot of the same paths. I was um honored to be invited to the first world ecstasy conference in uh, Israel in 1999, I think it was, uh, where I met the show. Oh, wow, that's cool. Yeah, and like everybody who was anybody in the world of MDMA research. Um, yeah huh. that was was
2: uh why was it in israel
1: um because i it was interesting uh question it, it was because the israeli government was a major sponsor and um i was invited by rick doblin uh who i'm sure you've met uh founder of maps yeah.
2: Yeah, and
1: yeah. um he invited me basically because we had met and and just hung out and spent an afternoon together and, and got to be uh, just, you know, I wouldn't say we were friends, but we realized we enjoyed each other's company. And, and he said, what are you doing in September? Why don't you come to this conference? Uh, there's some researchers from Spain who are going to be there who don't speak English. And I was living in Spain at the time. And uh, so basically I was invited as an interpreter, but also I had been uh, writing for maps for a while. So I was kind of in that world. And um, yeah, so the Israeli government, specifically the military, was funding um, the conference. And uh, I think Rick is from a prominent family. I think, I, I forget what it was, his grandfather or uncle or somebody in his family was like among the founders of of the Israeli state. So he's like a, a big shot in Israel. And um, it was really interesting in the conference, there were these generals like, you know, in uniform in the audience. And uh, they were asking... Questions about MDMA that led me to think that the the story was that they wanted to use MDMA for therapy to treat um, soldiers who had PTSD, right, from, from war. But some of the questions that they were asking led me to think they were more interested in the efficacy of MDMA in interrogation. And so that raised an interesting sort of moral question,
2: like, what led you to believe that?
1: Uh, you know, this was a long time ago, obviously, so I, I can't uh, produce any quotations or anything. But it was along the lines of, you know, well, you said that MDMA reduces um, anxiety and facilitates emotional, um connection uh you know would that happen even if the person were trying to resist that effect you know uh if the if the person were particularly anxious in the you know in the in their environment would it lessen it and make them more likely to um open up and and, you know tell tell things about their lives that they might not otherwise tell that, you know, the kind of thing where it's like, Oh, you're asking if someone's more likely to tell secrets, you know? Yeah. And it was interesting because initially I was like, fuck those guys that, you know, that's such a misuse of, of the substance. And then later I was like, yeah, but if, if it's a choice between, you know, electrodes attached to your testicles or, some MDMA getting into your bloodstream, you know, surreptitiously and a really attractive Israeli woman comes in to ask you some questions and you fall in love. Like, (laughs) I'm not sure where I come down on that morally.
2: Yeah. I mean, of course, that's the entire history of this sort of research. Pretty much from the beginning, That was how psychedelic, not from the very beginning, but close to it. I mean, World War II. The Nazis were using masculine as an interrogation tool. Mm. And then that's really the the beginning of MK Ultra. So I think that people have always been trying, but uh yeah, it's interesting that you would say that because there are all of these like vaguely, maybe not explicitly, but sort of vaguely anti-Semitic conspiracy theories that Rick Doblin gets uh, wrapped up into surrounding like his collaboration with Mossad or something like that. Like I don't mm. think there's any real substance to it, but it, it's like the things that you just said kind of serve as the, um, the points that conspiracy theorists use to create this web that uh, Rick Doblin is part of some kind of like Israeli Zionist um, plot to, I don't know what, control people with MDMA. Right. Right, if the if Hollywood doesn't do it, we'll we'll control them all through the
1: MDMA. Yeah. yeah well, it, I mean any conspiracy theorists who happen to be tuning in, uh I definitely wouldn't sign on to that. I've been to Rick's house. He he's uh he's just a regular guy as far as I can tell. I mean, I yeah. thought Rick Rick was a complete um what's the word? Like when I met Rick, I thought you know good on you for trying but this is never going to work you're never going to get this stuff legalized you know that was the 90s and uh and here we are and man the impact that he's had on the culture is is unprecedented it's it's incredible what do you think about that the the whole question of legalization of these substances particularly I think MDMA is, some people consider it to be a psychedelic. I don't. Do
2: you? No, not. I think that there's a lot of things that kind of fall nebulously into an umbrella of like semi-psychedelic. But no, if you're talking, you know, strictly speaking, definitely not. Yeah. Um,
1: What what do you think about the legalization of psychedelics? in particular what what's your take on that is that a a benefit for society or or
2: i think so but but also i mean i'm you know i have a very laissez-faire attitude toward most of these things i i don't really get into these like paternalistic control fantasies that a lot of people seem to really be eager to engage in like i'm always amazed by how many adults like seem to fantasize about ways to control things like it just is totally unappealing to me to think about uh, like limitations of people's access to chemicals i just don't it doesn't if the argument is that it reduces harm it's clear that's not the case so then what is the point like it doesn't prevent people from using any of these substances it doesn't reduce harm in fact it dramatically increases the harm associated with the use and so I think legalization and some extent uh, regulation, right? In terms of like purity, I think it is important to regulate purity so that people aren't um, consuming misrepresented materials or materials that are contaminated with dangerous impurities of one kind or another. But beyond that, I think that, uh, yeah, I think these things should be accessible to anybody that wishes to access them.
1: Well, no age restriction?
2: Yeah, I think there probably should be an age restriction. Although even like, yeah, probably there should be. Probably it's a good idea to limit access to people at least over the age of 18, I guess. But again, this sort of thing is really not like, you know, that would be those judgments would be something I'd want to leave to somebody who's like really carefully studied the neurodevelopmental dimensions of the toxicity of these substances. And it should be evidence-based and carefully considered because for so much of history, these things have not really been evidence-based. They've just been uh, knee-jerk reactions to people's fears that are often exacerbated by journalists who historically have just made all of the problems associated with drug use exponentially worse
3: mm,
1: yeah yeah i'm reminded of the whole uh, lsd um breaks chromosomes studies which uh what was that the 70s or something
2: i um, think even earlier and and yeah and that i mean that was the kind of the worst of both worlds because you not only had uh bad science being conducted methodologically unsound scientific research but then you have journalists leading leaning into that and uh making something that was already a problem even worse because it was sensationalist and 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 of course you can argue that you know everyone had good intentions which they probably did like i i think that most of these issues don't come from people acting maliciously like the journalists weren't like ha 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 how can i prevent people from having the freedom to explore altered states of consciousness, they were probably thinking, Oh, maybe this stuff really is dangerous. And isn't it my responsibility as a journalist to get this information out there? And isn't it also convenient that these sorts of, uh, stories about danger also are successful stories that people talk about. So it's kind of a win-win situation. You're protecting the public and it's good professionally. Right. And you see that to this day. I mean, that's, you know, one of the historical, examples this kind of uh unfounded fear-mongering about lsd causing chromosome damage but it continues to this day there's still uh, an enormous amount of fear-mongering related to drugs
1: yeah and and there is bad intentions in some cases a a notable example would be um, the Nixon administration i forget who it was in his memoirs maybe 10 15 years ago said that they Ehrlichman. knew Ehrlichman. John Ehrlichman, yeah. yeah yeah that they knew that LSD was not a problem it was just a way to uh to target the anti-war movement which was you know strong among the hippies and and um was marijuana was the uh civil rights movement because uh, it was largely used by blacks and and that goes back to the 20s right the whole sort of Illegalization under what was it, Anslinger? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, yeah you're, no, you're I, right. In in journalism, often it's just people think they're doing the right thing, but uh in politics, it's often people know damn well they're doing the wrong thing.
2: Or they have some kind of distorted priorities where they're like, well, maybe maybe we're not being honest about why we're doing these things, but it's still good because the anti-war movement is bad, and we need to you know, interfere mm. with that. Like, everyone always has their own justification mechanisms for these sorts of behaviors. Like, it's the kind of, like, cartoon villain idea that, like, someone is trying to take away people's freedom. And that's not really the way that people tend to think about these things. And the only reason I even say that is because, you know, I think that there is this idea that's very prevalent among psychedelic enthusiasts. And it was uh, sort of popularized to some extent by Terrence McKenna. But I think he was really just speaking toward, Uh, greater anxieties that people had that the government is aware that psychedelics expand consciousness and they are intentionally trying to restrict your ability to expand your consciousness. And the reason that I think that that's a a bad thing to believe is that it's simply untrue. Like the reality is that uh, law enforcement has no idea what psychedelics are. They just have a a umbrella term narcotics and narcotics are bad. And 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 of course LSD and heroin are schedule 1 controlled substances. They're both bad drugs. They're both narcotics. So what difference does it make? They're not thinking like they're not speaking from experience having smoked DMT. Like this is this is just a uh this is what happens when people don't really understand a subject that they are in charge of regulating and uh And yeah, so I mean, historically, this stuff has just been an unbelievable mess. And I'm being like very generous in my interpretation when I say all this stuff, because it's caused like unspeakable human suffering. It's had a tremendously negative impact on scientific research. It's torn families apart. It's ruined lives. People have died like a lot of horrible shit has come out of these policies that uh That were, yeah, sometimes constructed out of uh, like racism or an explicit understanding that they could wield some kind of power through restricting people's access. Or just the fact that because everybody uses drugs, if you make drugs illegal, then that gives you the ability to enter anybody's home, search anybody's car. Suddenly, um, people are not protected by a lot of the protections that we were supposed to have like you know any police officer can say they they smell cannabis in a car and search your car and that's probable cause and and ultimately like that's going to work in their favor nine out of ten times like how are you going to prove that they didn't smell cannabis so these are very very powerful tools for reducing people's privacy um and that is real i think Mm, and then on top of that
1: no go ahead go ahead
2: and then on top of that when you like really trace the origin a lot of this stuff like some of it's even weirder than than the idea of like oh this could you know allow us to interfere with black people or hippies or the anti-war movement like during the reagan administration there is actually pretty strong evidence that uh nancy reagan in particular but also ronald reagan's uh, anti-drug leanings were astrologically mediated
1: (laughs) that's right i remember that they had the uh, white house astrologer come by yeah yeah
2: yeah yeah and and this is this is corroborated by multiple sources it's not some kind of weird speculation like and and it makes sense as well because Nancy Reagan was kind of like the original Melania Trump, right? She right. she's not like she's not like Hillary Clinton or Michelle Obama or somebody that you know is has a purpose and a mission as a, a first lady. She's somebody who is just a low level actress has no political ambitions, has no reason to be there other than the fact that her husband is somehow elected president of the United States. She has nothing to do with herself in the white house. So she starts redecorating the white house and spends something like $40,000 on new China for the white house. And then gets uh, ruthlessly mocked in the press for having wasted taxpayer money on these frivolous expenses, decorating the white house. And she has this public image crisis. She consults with her astrologer, Joan Quigley to say, what do I, what do I do about this? Joan Quigley says, well, you need a mission. You need a purpose. Uh And Neptune is in the 12th house, meaning drug abuse is going to be an issue facing our nation's youth. And that will be your purpose. And it's like, from that, astrological whim <laughs> comes like the Just ruination say, oh. of tens of thousands of lives yeah
1: fuck what a strange country this is i read something not too long ago that nancy reagan <laughs> was sort of famous in like i don't know what 1940s hollywood or something as like giving the best blow jobs
2: huh <laughs> i i didn't know about that that's
1: i mean <laughs> <laughs> i mean yeah. I, you know it's hard to imagine for me. Nancy Reagan's an old lady, you know, so it's not those two images don't really work very well in my oh,
2: head. Oh, but are you sure that's is that real? I, I think seen, so. I've seen, like, I've seen memes actually. Now that you mention it, that are like, that, but I thought they were just a joke because she was uh, like considered like the least sexually appealing person. So the joke was just that, uh-huh. like, like, but but there's actually evidence that she. Uh-huh. Look,
1: I'm pulling this out of my ass. I don't even remember where I read it, but it was something about like how wild. Yeah, exactly. We should, you know, (laughs) everyone should do their own research, just like vaccines. Um, But it was something about how like how wild Hollywood was in the 40s. And, you know, everyone was sleeping with each other and and that she was sort of well known as the blowjob queen of Hollywood in the 40s. So good for Ron. Uh, okay. Know. Yeah, yeah.
2: I'm seeing. I'm seeing that there's actually a, a good bit of. Oh, look of, at you! You're, you're uh, actually of, doing
1: um, research here in real time. Of, oh,
2: I had to check. Yeah, apparently <laughs> she was the throat goat. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> throat
1: goat. I never heard that before. <laughs> that's good. uh Yeah, yeah. Crazy, crazy shit. There. I mean, one of the things that I, I used to teach a class in uh, a medical school in Barcelona. I was a guest uh, invited guest lecturer once a year, and I would, they brought me in, I guess, to talk about things that people who were actually on the faculty wouldn't didn't want to talk about. So I talked about so called illegal drugs. Um, Because as you say, it's like, no, it's a very weird thing where people who are considered experts not only have no personal experience, but they're proud of their lack of personal experience. They, they're they avowedly ignorant. You know, it's like a China expert who says, don't, I've never been to China. I would never go to China. I don't even speak Chinese, but I'm an expert on China. You know, it's like, what the fuck? You know nothing about this, Sheriff. How did you become an expert?
2: Um, Oh, yeah. And the weirdest thing about it is that attitude that you're describing extends to both sides of the spectrum. So you have anti-drug experts who are proud of never having used drugs, but you also have people who are prominent drug researchers like Robin Carhart-Harris, who are on the pro-psychedelic side of the camp, who also are you know, very uncomfortable mentioning ever having consumed a psychoactive substance because they're concerned that it might bias their work. And everyone just takes that for granted. Like, of course, of course, of course, that would bias your work. But what are they talking about? Like, in what other situation would that be the case? You gave the example of someone that is an expert on China, but in anything, like if you were a, an ethnomusicologist and you were proud to say you'd never listen to any of the music that you study, people would think <laughs> that that's like, a, like yeah. oh, well, good, that's good. Because if you listen to any of the music that he studies, then uh, that would really bias him so much that we couldn't trust any of his conclusions.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Like drug research is, is such a cutout. It, it's so unlike any other area of research, you know, where it, it's like, it's sort of th- like there's a different set of rules uh, that applies to that one particular area. Uh, it's it's bizarre. I mean, even the terminology, as you say, narcotics, like LSD is not a narcotic. It doesn't put you to sleep. Narcotics are things that put you to sleep. Narcolepsy, you know, narc, it's, it's not... Um, you know, the, if anything, it's a stimulant, right? I mean, a lot of these are amphetamine derivatives or, or related to amphetamines. Um, but, you know, the whole idea of like drugs are good or drugs are bad. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? You're talking, it's like saying birds are good or birds are bad. You know, there are a million different things being lumped together. Um, but Yeah, I used to, one of the things I talked about was, um, you know, I, I, these medical students had no idea that you couldn't overdose, that there were there was no toxicity level um, that would result in death for LSD or marijuana or, you know, like um, they had no idea that a GHB coma was not medically dangerous. Uh, you know, there's just like all the incredible ignorance. Uh, and these are people who are, you know, physicians um, but because it's this prohibited area, it's 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 weirdly not taught. It's a very strange uh, quirk. But getting back to what you said earlier, so you don't think that the prohibition on psychedelics uh, until very recently in the United States, um, some cracks in the wall now, but you don't think that has anything to do with a threat. Um, related to some sort of insight into the, the false underpinnings of American society or or any of that?
2: No, no, I, I think almost certainly not. And this is really just based on my experience, having spoken with a lot of cops, spoken speaking with a lot of people in the DEA, um, you know, maybe they're all hiding it. But a lot of these people are from military backgrounds. They have never used psychedelic drugs they are not fans of terence mckenna they are not even like the idea of mind expansion would be like a joke like they would not like the idea that they would take that seriously is is like ridiculous they are not taking the concept of mind expansion seriously and the idea that they not only take it seriously but they believe in it and that is why we are being denied access to psychedelics because, like, you know, the average cop knows that DMT is going to expand your mind. No, I mean, I think the, the only degree of real intentionality extends to this, like, uh, you know, like, ability to deny people their constitutional rights, like, you know, how it, like, essentially uh, just, like, renders the Fourth Amendment, like, moot. Like, right. that. that is, that, I think, that, that there are strategic dimensions to it. Uh, on that level that are undeniable um but beyond that it's like i think it's it's like uncomfortable for people to recognize sometimes how little intentionality exists behind these massively consequential aspects of our society but like these things really do emerge as the most bizarre capricious whims and that's why i think like the astrology example is kind of important it's like can somebody's embarrassment for having bought new china result in like you know drug policy changes that will tear apart thousands of families yeah like that that is the way the world works
1: yeah yeah it often is i'm reminded you know the the indian state of kashmir Yeah, Yeah, where they've been fighting for since the independence of India and Pakistan, it's 80% Muslim. And so when when India and and Pakistan separated, and and most of the Muslims went to Pakistan and the Hindus to India, um, Kashmir was supposed to be part of Pakistan. And the reason it isn't is because the son of the... uh, i forgot who knows he was a king or a uh what the term was for the leader uh the sort of hereditary leader of the kashmiri area uh owed a lot of money to a casino in monaco and the british wanted kashmir to be part of india so they offered to pay off the kids debts to the casino if the father (laughs) signed over the state of kashmir to india rather than pakistan and as you know as you say it's like the most capricious little bullshit historical anomaly that's resulted in you know 80 years of constant warfare and and tension and and oppression and it's just like what history comes down to is so depressing sometimes and incomprehensible oh, yeah.
2: yeah yeah it's it's insane but the reason that the other reason that i think this distinction is important between the the terence mckenna interpretation of the motivation behind these policies and the i think reality is that if mckenna were right and everybody knew every, every cop knew every politician knew and they are making an informed and intentional decision to restrict our cognitive liberty then we'd be hopeless because it would all be intentional. But I think the fact that it's unintentional is actually also not only is it, I think a truer interpretation, I think it's a better situation to be in because if it comes from pure ignorance, then that gives you the opportunity to change things because they're not doing this based on any understanding, meaning they can potentially be taught otherwise. They don't know anything about if they were doing it because they knew exactly what psychedelics did and wanted to prevent people from accessing them, then we'd be in trouble. But that I don't think that is the case. And the work of Rick Doblin and other people, I believe, shows that the case is that people are willing to learn and change policy based on evidence. It's slow and a Herculean task, but it appears to be possible.
1: Yeah. Another interpretation somewhere between those two would be that in the late 60s, there was a fear of psychedelics as being uh, corrosive to the fabric of society, you know, which is why Nixon called Timothy Leary the most dangerous man in America, apparently. And Leary was, you know, telling everyone to tune in, turn on and drop out. And so that it was perceived as being uh, a significant danger to capitalism and American, you know, uh, ingenuity or whatever, if all these educated young people dropped out of society. But That awareness has dissipated over time, but the paranoia continues. I mean, I've seen this a lot in terms of sexuality, right? Somewhere around 60 to 70% of American boys, not Jewish, not Muslim, get circumcised in America. Nobody knows why. The reason why is the anti masturbation hysteria of the early 20th century where people like Kellogg were telling parents to get their little their sons uh, circumcised because it would uh, discourage them from masturbating the war on masturbation has dissipated but the the weird sort of artifacts related to it persists through time and no one really thinks about the original reasons anymore
2: right yeah that makes sense i could see that that being the case and yeah like everything it, it could be anywhere in between but i think that even then, even in the '60s, people recognized that there was a counterculture that included all kinds of things—you know, free love, use of drugs, uh, a release of traditional values of one kind or another, new types of music, new types of art, new types of uh, behavior in general—and that was. And psychedelics were part of that, and that was frightening, and they did get lumped into that certainly but um but i still think that for the most part that fear was not based on a genuine understanding of psychedelics it was mm-hmm. mostly just kind of a, a nebulous uh sensationalist concern that was uh both promoted and intercepted by people who didn't really get what was going on
1: right right what do you think about you know sort of following this line of reasoning the the mind expansion sort of counter cultural potential of psychedelics. If, if in fact the culture is based on false values Um you know, the sort of the argument that Leary and McKenna and others would, would have made, I think is that when you experience psychedelics, you're likely to sort of, see uh, see the world through values that are more authentic, right? Like what matters is love and beauty and community and kindness, not money and ambition and power and all these sort of false, you know, these vices um, that would lead you to redesign your life and, and potentially have society sort of reflect that redesign. Do you think that, is that a valid... Um, interpretation of this experience or can psychedelics be co-opted by a corrupt culture to the point where they no longer impart that message
2: that yeah that's a really complicated question because it assumes that there is a message to begin with which i'm not certain that there is specifically a message if the idea is that there is one type of culture that is bad and psychedelics Uh, communicate a message of goodness of one kind or another, whether it's ecological consciousness or um, some kind of, you know, hippie values like, um, you know, being anti-war or uh, being in favor of love or something like that. You know, of course I being somebody that really likes psychedelics would like that to be the case, but, you know, Stanislav Grof had this famous characterization of LSD, which is that it's a a non-specific amplifier of, Human tendencies, or I think he was specifically maybe referring to the subconscious or something, but just the general idea that it is a non specific amplifier of pre existing tendencies of one kind or another. So maybe if you are somebody that, you know, deeply cares about the environment, but you're so caught up in writing emails and whatever else, you don't really think about it. And then maybe you take a psychedelic and it amplifies something within you, but that was something that already existed within you. And you could see that also moving in a negative direction, right? There's absolutely no shortage of evidence that using psychedelics does not necessarily make you a good person. Um there are countless bad, greedy, violent, unpleasant people who have used enormous quantities of psychedelics. So they are not panaceas that will just uh, you know, immediately transform you into a a good person person, but this question of of the values of a society. I mean, I think in addition to this non-specific amplifier characterization, I think that they have another uh, quality, which is a sort of arguably value neutral um, removal from your current interpretation of of the world that allows you to see something as if it is new. And I think this is also the reason that psychedelics, at least for me, tend to be extremely funny. And the experience of using a psychedelic tends oh. to be hilarious for me. And I think it's hilarious for the same reason that in like an 80s comedy where you have like a Martian coming right. to Earth and seeing human society for the first time, the joke is like how ridiculous everything is. Or like Encino Man, you have like someone that is thought out and what is this, Is Seven Eleven. This is ridiculous. They're seeing it for the first time. And that's actually like, uh, a, a big component of various comedies is this kind of fish out of water, seeing society for the first time and recognizing how absurd it is. And I think that psychedelics are operating on that same 80s comedy axis of you see the world again <laughs> through new eyes and you realize how ridiculous everything is. Now, that again, I think is important, but also value neutral, right? Like you can see the ridiculousness of you know driving around in cars or people looking at their phones on the subway or you know the the weird ways that people care for their dogs or whatever like you can see the the ridiculousness of that but it's still your choice to decide how you will interface with that ridiculousness and w- what values you want to assign to it and how you want to move forward in the face of what you have seen and that can span from wanting to destroy it to wanting to embrace it. So again, I think that they do a lot of powerful things, but it's still very much up to the individual and their system of values and their desires to interpret those experiences and direct them towards something. Mm. For many people, it seems to be positive, but that's obviously not always the case.
1: Well, that's it's an interesting... It's an interesting perspective on it, because, I mean, I think of when I've taken psychedelics, and again, this could be in alignment with what you just outlined, this could just be a projection of my pre-existing values, but I think about how the things that looked ridiculous tend to be um, sort of empty cultural rituals, Um, you know, or you go to a bar and you see drunk people and they're so ugly and so clumsy and ridiculous. And it it feels like being a species with a, you know, a higher, a higher frequency, you know, um, and, and you just sort of see the emptiness. But when I look at the nature, it's fucking gorgeous. There's nothing ridiculous about nature. Um, There's nothing ridiculous about Jimi Hendrix or the Beatles or, you know, like fucking awesome music or art or, you know, a good film or like things that are authentically awesome are more awesome. And things that are authentically ridiculous are more ridiculous. And I don't feel like that's based on my values. I feel like that's a reflection of reality.
2: Well, it would be very hard to say one way or the other. Of course, I, I imagine that we have substantially similar values. So what you're saying rings true to me. But it's without having totally different values. It's hard for me to say, like, I happen to not drink and not like alcohol. And I know exactly what you're talking about. Of this, I, I, Now I live in Philadelphia, but I used to live in Williamsburg right below a bar. And if I ever used a psychedelic and walked out of my apartment, the first thing I would see would be people vomiting and acting like, (laughs) um, acting like beasts, like, like the world worse than beasts, like just the worst type of organism imaginable. (laughs) And, uh, and, and yes, I would like to think that this is, some kind of reflection of a, a higher understanding of human potential and this wasting of the capacity of the human mind engaged in this pursuit of oblivion or whatever, but it's still a product of my values. So it's hard, it's hard to have an objective stance on that okay. matter, especially coming, coming from two people that have presumably pretty similar values. Right.
1: Okay. But I mean, a resonance with nature is not a value. That's a biological reality right that we evolved on this planet as primates and responding to a and sort of a natural resonance between our cells and and the the vibrations of the planet we've evolved on so i mean th- there's a level at which i don't know some people say they don't like the taste of water i don't understand so maybe that <laughs> you know <laughs> Maybe that's that supports your argument. But um, another way to come at the question would be to say, and this is a question I wanted to ask you, if your take on the interaction between culture and substances, right? So we have, you know, you can almost look at it in terms of decades. In American society, you've got, you know, the 60s associated with psychedelics. You've got the 70s associated with, Yeah, I don't know, Quaaludes or, uh, you know, something, the 80s cocaine. Um, And then if if you look at the values of the society during the the decade, it seems to reflect the tendencies of the substance. But I'm not sure the cause and effect, right? Is it cocaine that made the 80s so pernicious and and money-driven? Or... Did cocaine become popular because it fit into that set of values that were already created by the culture?
2: It's probably both. I think it's probably, I mean, you can, and I agree that there are these characteristic relationships between an era and a a prominent substance. I think right now you could say that this is sort of like a a ketamine era. I was going to say that, yeah, in, in many ways, and that the dissociation. From the environment that ketamine promotes is a reflection of the atomized electronic existences that characterize, uh, especially during COVID and in the wake of COVID, most people's lives. That your life becomes this kind of isolated, uh, a sensory internal experience that um, inhibits communication and direct contact with others. Um, and did COVID cause ketamine to become popular? maybe maybe that Hmm. was a a drug that was more enjoyable to use in isolation because it promoted this internal experience in a way that mdma might be less enjoyable to use in isolation because of its ability to enhance touch and communication with others um but ketamine certainly didn't cause covid uh i think that (laughs) that much is is clear or the you know the tendency that electronics have promoted to encourage this sort of remote communication. Like there was Mm. a time where if you wanted to interview me, we would have had to have been in the same room and that time is not now. So there is a, a technological and social tendency toward isolation and atomization and, and ketamine does seem to be reflective of that tendency. Um, And And it it could potentially exacerbate that tendency, and there could be an interesting interplay. But I think, if anything, it's probably often the case that, yeah, the two go hand in hand. Like, did LSD create the 60s? No, there were all sorts of changes taking place from the values of the 1950s, but LSD played a big role, and those changes made people more receptive to the effects of LSD, and there was an interplay.
1: Right. There's definitely a feedback effect. I mean, you think about early Beatles, late Beatles, you know, or, you know, could Jimi Hendrix or Parliament Funkadelic have existed without psychedelics? Like, I don't think so. I mean, James Brown did, you know, and, and I, I think it's almost like James Brown or or, you know, that kind of pushed music as far as it could go until psychedelics came in and and blasted it open it's kind of like Mahler with the late classical period and then you get into atonality. you know it's like it kind of feels like things get to a certain point where they can't go any further and then psychedelics blasted it open and to take another stab at at you know making an outdated argument for objective value the late 60s is the best music like still that you know if you look at the top 20 uh most played bands on Spotify, like 13 of them are from, you know, the late sixties to the mid seventies. So it's kind of like, uh, as far as popular music goes, it does seem that psychedelics were at least associated with the best.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, there was something going on. There was clearly <laughs> something going on. There were a lot of things going on and, yeah and i I would love to give psychedelics a lot of credit for that I think they deserve definitely a lot of credit it's it's a, but I think it's also a little bit of a trap that people fall into, especially people like me that really like psychedelics is to start to see everything as a product of psychedelics you know so like it becomes <laughs> yeah. almost it becomes almost hard to imagine. anything not emerging as a result of psychedelic influences. And you see this, this is like the people that spend their lives trying to find mushrooms in every historical Christian iconography. And, and like they can't fathom the possibility that any music or religion or any human creativity could have emerged without the influence of some kind of psychoactive drug.
1: What do you think about the whole uh, Santa Claus Christmas theory and the flying reindeer and, the gifts under the tree and all that, do you, do you, uh, support that or believe that? Uh,
2: I don't know. I'm sort of agnostic when it comes to a lot of interpretation of ancient traditions. Um, and, and this is something that I've like, I'm friends with a lot of people who are really interested in that kind of thing. Then I've watched them go down these rabbit holes. But for me, like I, know from personal experience most of the like historical research that I do is like 60s 70s 80s and even with stuff relating to the 80s it can be insanely difficult to figure out what was going on mm-hmm. so when people start talking to me about uh various rituals related to things that were happening thousands of years ago I mean it's it's important and useful to, uh, speculate about these things, but I don't feel much confidence that we'll ever know with certainty about things like the, the origin of Santa Claus. And, and I am not an expert on, on the, like Amanita Santa Claus connection, but, uh, it seems plausible that there could be some connection. I mean, I, the argument is interesting.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The whole Santa Claus thing is very strange, you know, and I, I have good friends in Holland and in Dutch culture, Santa Claus comes from Madrid.
2: Yeah, on
1: a that's boat. That's weird. I mean, what the <laughs> fuck, man? He comes on a boat, docks in Rotter- Rotterdam, and then from there goes off with the flying reindeer. I mean, why Santa Claus would be in Madrid, I, I I don't understand that. Um, you you said earlier you had questions for me. Did you? I don't want to drown you out if you actually did, or if you were just trying to scare me.
2: Oh no, I mean, I guess. You know, I actually haven't read your book. I'm sorry to say, but I've heard a lot about it. I've heard good things about it. I think we have some mutual friends, like you, you know Duncan Trussell, right? Is that? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I've just I've been aware of your work. I just wanted to. I'm sort of like curious about uh, Sex at Dawn. I haven't. I'm. I after speaking with you, I'm definitely going to read it. I just uh, haven't read it yet. Uh yeah, it's that's not really a question. That's just like a statement that's not very (laughs) interesting. (laughs) Sorry.
1: I thought you I thought you had some like uh you're gonna put me on the spot. You had some uncomfortable question you were were you're tearing up to ask me. Um so as far as uh you know, the this the whole sort of you were talking about going down rabbit holes and things. Do you remember like the first time you you experienced psychedelics did you want to
2: give them to everybody you loved did you want to like proselytize um not i mean i i had kind of uh, early on i had like a intense enthusiasm for psychedelics and then i also very early on uh kind of like ha- saw how potentially damaging they can be. And so I went from uh, having a very, like, passionate interest to also like a very cautious interest in a span of a short period of time. Because when Mm -hmm. I was a freshman in college, I was close friends with somebody, uh, really my best friend at the time. And we both were extremely interested in psychedelics. And he had a psychotic break while we were tripping together that I think was not, I think it would have happened anyway. Like this was, you know, he's in that, that, uh, you know, 20 year old age when people are really most vulnerable to having a psychotic break. And he did have some prodromal symptoms in retrospect. Um, but seeing that and and being present when that happened was definitely a, a really sobering, moment for me, because I I so on one hand, yes, I felt like, wow, this is so amazing. And so profound and powerful and potentially beneficial. This is an experience that everybody should have. But then after seeing uh, this, this close friend of mine, have a psychotic break, there was also this feeling of well, is it rolling the, the dice with your sanity every time that you have this experience? And uh, is it responsible to talk about it as if there are no um no associated problems so yeah i i would say that like right off the bat i i had these two extremes and that has had a very i mean it's in uh, not just a lasting impact i mean i'll never it was like totally set the tone for my understanding of these substances in a way that um you know it's very difficult what happened i think it would have happened regardless but it's still um it definitely had a, a sobering effect on me and, um, created a lasting appreciation for the potential risks associated with using psychoactive drugs.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Were, were you with him when it was happening?
2: Yes. Yeah.
1: That's gotta be a very difficult experience for you as well. I mean, with your own reality, sort of in a fluid state to see somebody yes. going through that
2: yes it certainly was yeah it was very very disturbing and and i didn't fully appreciate what had happened because it was it it precipitated something but it wasn't as if like he he was never the same after it but if you were to graph the dysfunction it wasn't like a you know it was like kind of starting to go up then there was uh the psychotic episode, then he got out of the hospital, and he kind of came sort of back to normal, but not quite back to normal. And then the the uh, psychosis gradually increased in severity over the the coming months, and he dropped out of school. And, and yeah, so it was, you know, it it definitely served as a stressor that seemed to accelerate a process that had already begun. And it could have been, and often is any number of things, right? Like, it could be a psychedelic experience or a drug experience of one kind or another. It could be a breakup. It could be the stresses associated with school or family stresses or professional stresses of one kind or another. I yeah. think that the main thing is that the the drama of the psychedelic experience can serve as a really profound stressor because, um, you know, one of the most powerful things that a psychedelic can do, and I always feel kind of weird talking about this publicly because it sounds terrible but I think one of the most amazing things they can do is make you think that you're going to die. And that is really one of the paradoxically, one of the most beneficial experiences that you can possibly have is to have a a moment where you actually think that you're going to die and then don't die. That's what really makes it beneficial. And, (laughs) and, uh, and come out of it with a yeah. newfound clarity and appreciation for your life. I mean, that's that's kind of one of the greatest gifts a person can have. And I think a lot of a lot of the things in life that are beneficial carry some component of that. but whether it's, you know, you know, the the kind of lessons that can be learned in the loss of someone that you love or even certain types of exercise, that have a a component of fear associated with them. Like I rock climb Mm. and, and for me, like a big part of what makes rock climbing appealing is that I am slightly afraid of heights and that there is this constant psychological challenge in addition to the, the physical dimensions of the exercise. So, um, so yeah, it can do this really amazing thing, which is make you think that you're going to die and that can be profoundly beneficial, but it's also almost by definition immensely stressful.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's interesting you talk about rock climbing. I I uh, I think about things like rock climbing, scuba diving, uh, even like you know jumping like jumping off a twenty foot cliff into into a river or something. Things where biologically you think you're going to die. But intellectually, you know, you won't, are really interesting um, to, to split those those aspects of yourself um, and sort of observe how one part of you is convinced you're about to die and the other part knows better, and sort of see those two things. It it occurs to me as, as you're talking here that psychedelics maybe do that same thing with ego that split off ego. So the ego feels that you're dying. You're having an ego death. Um, Whereas other parts of you, the spirit or, or some, I don't know, the vocabulary gets complicated in these things, but there's another part of you that knows like, no, dude, you just took some acid. You're having this experience. You're going to be fine. Um, And, and that kind of like observer observed, schism can be very enlightening in life, whether it's from rock climbing or, or psychotropic uh, experiences.
2: But but even with when I'm actually speaking very literally, when I say I think you're going to die, um, you know, like some of these experiences, that's, that's part of it, you have a or I have had several experiences where, for whatever reason, I start to feel weird, often, after taking a high Dose of a psychedelic, and I start to have a, a concern of some kind. Like uh, maybe I'm having an allergic response to something. Maybe, oh. um, maybe maybe something something is happening. Something bad is happening to my body, and I am dying. And so there is actual a, a fear that, physiologically speaking, there is some sort of dysfunction at play, and I am dying. And that is what provokes this very real concern about my own mortality. And the same is also true with with rock climbing, I find is, um, you know, when, when you're climbing on a rope, at least doing top rope climbing, the chances of hurting yourself are extremely, extremely low. But when you're bouldering, which is, you know, climbing at lower heights without a rope or, uh, lead climbing, which is where you have to periodically clip in as you're climbing, the chance of hurting yourself becomes real. Um, it would, in most instances require a true freak accident to kill yourself, but, The the possibility of falling in some weird way and breaking a limb definitely is there. And my skill level drops precipitously when that real risk is introduced. I become so unbelievably cautious. Something that if I were doing it with a rope would be absolutely a non issue. I wouldn't think twice about it. Suddenly, that reality that yeah you have to move really slowly and really intentionally because if you do not place your foot exactly where you want it to go and you slip this could result in you fucking yourself up in some way and then that again this is like a very psychologically challenging experience again because the risk is real if the risk weren't real um then i don't think it would have that impact but as soon as the possibility of hurting yourself actually exists it totally changes everything
1: yeah it's interesting to think about how we deal with that um i went rock climbing once and i was top roped i was it was just like a weekend course and i was terrified i I got to an overhang and i froze up and you know i could feel the strength of my body starting to you know go away and i couldn't move up i couldn't move down and And intellectually, I knew like, I'm going to fall two inches, like I'm going to scrape my knee, maybe, you know, Um, but because my body hadn't yet been convinced that the rope and the harness would actually work, you know, and then I rappelled down and then I was fine the rest of the day. Once I had rappelled down, then my body knew like, oh, you're good. Same thing with scuba diving. Once I was actually underwater and breathing through the respirator, my body was like, oh, shit, you didn't die. Okay, you're fine. But then I rode motorcycles for years and I never, I never felt uh, that I was at any great risk, even though I was at much, much greater risk, you know?
2: Right, 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 S- right. It's a weird
1: thing. And I've never had that experience. I've, I've never had the experience with psychedelics where I felt like, oh, I'm having a heart attack or I'm, you know, a stroke or something. I've never thought I was actually going to die when I was tripping. Uh, <clears throat> I felt like ego shit. You know obviously, and you know potential freak out kind of that kind of thing, but i never I never had that experience of uh oh something medically uh wrong is happening here,
2: yeah, I hesitate to say that I recommend it, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, how do I set that up?
1: <laughs> I gotta like rob a bank or something and get some guns pointed at me. <laughs> Uh, so how, what's, your, what's your, uh, your feeling about addiction? And we've talked about substances a lot. Uh, do you align with the addiction as disease model or do you see addiction as more of a pre-existing psychological imbalance that gets blamed on substances?
2: Yeah, like all of these things, it's neither exactly. It's maybe a, sort of a spectrum because there are pretty well-established genetic contributors to the way people respond to drugs. Some people have extremely severe hangovers whenever they drink, like me, mm. for example, so much so that drinking is basically not an option. Like, mm. I, I don't think that I could be an alcoholic if I wanted to be one because it would, the punishment associated with the hangovers would be so great. There's just no, there's no way that that would ever work for me. Some people don't have hangovers at all. So that's my problem.
1: I'd never have hangovers. I stopped drinking seven months ago and everyone said, you're going to feel so much better. I feel exactly the same.
2: (laughs) Yes, there you go. So, so right off the bat, We are in totally different boats when it comes to how we respond to alcohol. And so to say that, you know, it's purely cultural would diminish the very real influences of people's genetic metabolic uh, differences and how they respond to various drugs. So there's that, that that's something that has to be acknowledged. Some people have bad hangovers, some people don't, some people achieve a more euphoric effect From alcohol, others don't. Some people who are predisposed to anxiety type disorders are going to find cannabis very unappealing and will have extremely severe anxiety induction from any consumption of a cannabinoid. Other people like me never have any kind of anxiety associated with cannabis if anything it has an anti-anxiety effect so there is definitely a component of the individual biological psychological metabolic response to these substances that is real and documented the flip side is that we often completely neglect to acknowledge the very real cultural developmental contributions as well like um you know, like there's a, a popular YouTube channel called Soft White Underbelly. And wow. I saw that they had, I just, I just looked at a video they had and it was like interview with a spice addict. And then you look at interview with a spice addict and it's like, well, I've been homeless since I was 11. I was molested. I was a prostitute. I was a heroin addict. I you know, was in prison and it's like, well, wait a second, we're going to call this person a spice addict. This person is a lot of things that, uh, that are going on. I don't even know where to begin with how you would classify this person, but to Mm. talk about them as if they are a spice addict and their exposure to this drug somehow defines who they are is, uh, is like, reductionist to the point of complete absurdity now i'm not saying that as a criticism of the soft white underbelly guy like i don't think he he you know he's writing a youtube uh video title like i get it but but i think that is also reflective of the way that we tend to talk about drug issues like um you know like someone could have horrible problems with the drug and we will say wow that drug sure is dangerous but was that same person abused as a child Hmm. Did did that same person grow up in a family where both of their parents were dependent on drugs? Did they ever have a positive role model who didn't use drugs in a problematic way? How much of their life has been influenced by various behaviors and patterns that created a susceptibility to a problematic relationship with this or that drug? And Does, uh, Does that
1: person live in a society that believes that pills can solve problems?
2: Right, right.
1: You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's everywhere. Yeah. 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 It's crazy stuff. Uh, Well, listen, we've, we've gone an hour. I don't want to take more of your time. Uh, Thank you for doing this. And and thank you for your work. Are you, uh, what are you doing now? I know you have a podcast. Is that on? Yeah. Yeah. Or uh, is it a seasonal thing or what?
2: It's, uh, I mean, you can listen to it. Patreon.com slash Hamilton Morris. It's mostly chemistry and pharmacology interviews related to psychedelics, but it's some other stuff as well. And I also put a, a, an episode for free on my YouTube channel every now and then as well. And then other than that, I'm just, I'm making psychedelic drugs at a university in Philadelphia. That's, I just make drugs all day. That's what I, that's what I do. So you're like kind of picking up where, uh,
1: Sasha Shulgin left off tweaking stuff.
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, yes, I would say that in that, Bain, I'm very much, of course, inspired by him. And yeah, I mean, what's wonderful is that there's actually quite a few people now that are doing that sort of work because of the new commercial interest in psychedelics. It's created funding streams that have made it much easier to do research on psychedelics than it was in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of like, one of the complicated factors in all of this, because I think people find commercialization very controversial in this domain. But uh, whatever your attitude might be, the reality is that people investing in this stuff has resulted in pretty much every chemist that I knew who previously had no way of funding this research in suddenly having funding. And it's it's been a really good time for the discovery of new psychedelics. Like this is uh, what's happening right now is only going to be rivaled by the 1960s in terms of the proliferation of of new psychoactive substances. So it's a it's a cool time, and it's probably going to be a couple years before people realize exactly what a cool time it is right now. Is
1: is the is the orientation toward just pure science just just synthesizing new molecules and seeing how they interact with the Neurochemistry, existing neurochemistry, or is it directed toward, um, you know, re- alleviating depression or anxiety or or any particular ailment?
2: It's both. And what's interesting about this research is because there's still so much fundamental uncertainty in the psychopharmacological mechanism of the therapeutic effect of psychedelics. It almost has to be exploratory basic science mm. because there's pretty much no other choice. Like, you know, yeah. if you were if you were making antibiotics, you say, okay, what's the what's the IC50 in X bacterium for Y antibiotic substance? And that's it. You have a very clear endpoint that you're measuring. And so you're looking at one thing in particular, but with antidepressants, what exactly are you looking at? I mean, obviously there are animal models like for swim, but they are terrible. I don't know if you follow that. They're, they're horrible. Um, I mean, they're, they are, I think they have so such limited predictive value that they just shouldn't be used and they won't be used. But they're the problem is that there's a history of doing this test where you just put a rodent in a cylinder of water and measure how long it treads water before succumbing to exhaustion and a longer time period treading water is considered a antidepressant What? Um
1: <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. who the
2: yeah. fuck yeah.
1: came up with that that's horrible uh,
2: oh yeah i think it's oh. some guy named poor salt or something was the person that came up with it but yeah it's 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 a terrible and it's like it's it's terrible in that you know there was a a drug that just was a huge catastrophic phase two clinical trial disaster our and, and it was being tested on the basis of forced swim. So it's like bad for everyone involved. Like you're potentially wasting huge amounts of money if you think that, um, this is like a reliable way to characterize the efficacy of an antidepressant. So that's dumb. I think a good number of people recognize that's a terrible technique, but the problem is what is good. I mean, you you have human clinical trials and depression rating scales, which themselves have their own limitations, but, uh, short of that, you know, there's like, there's still fundamental debate on how SSRIs exert antidepressant effects, or if they even are effective antidepressants. Exactly. So it's, yeah. It, yeah, so, so th- these are not simple questions to ask. So for better or worse, it is exploratory basic science, because there is uh, no other way to do it at this point.
1: So what you're saying seems to be that as far as this science con- is concerned we're still at the map making stage we're not at the let's go here or there navigate this way or that way we're still trying to figure out where we are and yeah like, yeah very i mean some early.
2: yeah some people have you know proposed various things like you know for a while people say oh it's the release of neurotrophic factors you know so we'll just create a drug that is really powerful at releasing bdnf and then that's going to be uh, an effective treatment for depression. So they they tried that they found this drug NSI 189, very powerful, hippocampal neurogenesis inducing agent, and fails in clinical trials. So that that's a, a disappointment. And you see this again, and again, people come up with some target, whether it's neurotrophic factors, or um, s- uh, some kind of dendritic remodeling, or um, you know, some constellation of activity of various monoamine transporters or whatever. And it's, it's good from a scientific perspective, because if you have a, a target, you can then make a, you know, a hundred compounds and say, okay, we select this one because it is the most potent BDNF releaser, or it, uh, causes the the greatest enlargement of the, uh, heads of dendritic spines or, um, or whatever. And, uh, and, and so from a basic scientific research perspective, that kind of thing is valuable, uh, in terms of getting something into the clinic, but you have to be pretty confident that whatever it is that you're measuring is actually associated with therapeutic efficacy. And that's hard to do.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go do some dendritic remodeling. I think It's about fucking time. Thank you for doing this Hamilton. Yeah.
2: Yeah. 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 Thank you. It was good talking.